A couple of you have made mention of my tie, and I just let you know when your when your wife is born on Valentine's Day in Loveland, Colorado, <laughs> you, you need to make a production of that. So, <laughs> just twenty nine years ago today, <laughs> give or take, hello. So. Uh, there's always something scary about uh, starting a new job, taking on a new uh, challenge or endeavor, right? I mean, uh, it, it can be exhilarating, it can be exciting, but uh, there's also a, a, a component of fear because as with anything new, uh, there's just that element of the unknown and that can be frightening, and that's especially true when you don't really have a clue about what it is you're supposed to be doing. And uh, that, uh, um, coupled with a limited job description from which to work, could create a lot of uh, anxiety. And that describes me perfectly when I first came here as pastor. Um, you know, I, I shared before that I was not planning on being a preacher, uh, so my college education didn't really prepare me for pastoral duties, you know, seeing uh, as I was a a physical education uh, major. So I I didn't know what I was doing when I first arrived here. There wasn't a a job description, and there was nobody here to to show me the ropes or or, uh, train me. And so it was scary stuff. Uh, Fortunately, the, uh, the church was composed of a very uh, loving and gracious group that stuck with me as I kind of fumbled and bumbled my way through those beginning things. And wh- what I ended up doing was reading lots of books. A- and most uh, of them had some good stuff in them. And I gradually learned a little more and a little more about what it meant to be a pastor. And I remember reading one guy, you know, who, who said um, that the church will generally take on the character and beliefs of the pastor. And at first I thought, well, oh, good. I mean, right here in Hot Springs, we'll have an entire group of Miami Dolphin fans, just like that. Um, Turns out that's not what he meant. Uh, He he went on to say that the church will go no further, go no deeper spiritually than the pastor goes. And that the character and that the attitude that the pastor consistently displays will more often than not uh, be what the church learns and displays. And, of course, that's when I thought, uh-oh, uh, you know, this is serious stuff. But there's one book that I read that had a huge uh, impact uh, on me, and I was early uh, in my pastorate here, and that book was called The Discipline of Grace by a guy named Jerry Bridges. Uh, That book uh, really helped me to dive into the the biblical teaching of God's grace. And and I I quickly realized that up until that point, I had a fairly narrow uh, and limited understanding of what grace meant, what it did for us, and what it accomplishes even now in our lives. And after reading and and studying that and and diving into Scripture with that, I, I realized... I really wanted to be a grace-driven person. And, and I'd like to lead uh, a, a Bible-centered but grace-driven type of church. So turn with me 
to the little book of Titus, chapter 2. Titus, um, in all the New Testament uh, books that start with T, they're all grouped together. And Patty pointed out to me this week, they're alphabetical too. So if you find a T book, you're you're real close to Titus. If you went to Hebrews, you went too far. Um, Titus, chapter 2, towards the end of the New Testament. Follow along as I read uh, verses uh, 11 and 12. I think somebody stole my glasses. All right. We'll go for it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the opportunity that we have here. What a blessed opportunity to come publicly, openly, to, to fellowship with, with other believers, to, to share the joy of our faith, to share the struggles. But to know we can do that. We do pray for the so many around the world who, who would love to gather like this, who would love to hold a Bible in their hands and open up your word as it's publicly proclaimed. So God, may we, may we take advantage of that with a whole heart this morning and allow you to work freely in our hearts and minds. We pray that you would keep us free from distraction and that your message that you desire for each one of us this morning would come through clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few uh, weeks ago, I had uh, shared that one of my personal core values is uh, having fun, and uh, uh, that's pretty evident if you spend very much time with me. And that's a a value that uh, just was naturally a part of me. But I, I also have another core value for me, and that is to be a a grace-driven person. And this was not natural. It's something that I determined I wanted to develop in my life um, by nature. I'm not a very grace-giving person. I'm much more prone to be critical, uh, judgmental, and, and condemning. And so a heart and an attitude of grace is, is something that I had to con- uh, intentionally uh, cultivate and work at and, and try to develop in my life. And the truth is I have to just continuously keep working on that. And sometimes I, I fail. I understand that. But I, I keep pressing on because it really is a value of my heart. And I, I know that grace is imperfectly uh, reflected in me, but hopefully it is at least discernibly reflected uh, and, and uh, maybe even predominantly reflected. That's, that's my goal and my desire. And in the same way, uh, as I had said, I, I desired that we as a church, as this local gathering of individual believers, that we would also display that characteristic, that we would, as a whole, be uh, uh, grace-driven in our actions and in our attitudes. And, and, and I, I think we are, I mean, as a church, at least like me, we're, we're learning to do that. Uh, I would hope that each of us would, uh, you know, 
occasionally pull out the old grace-o-meter and, and, and measure, you know, how are we doing and where are we at on, on that scale. Hopefully we're getting uh, better uh, day by day in that. Um, I know it's not listed as one of our core values, but I really uh, pray that it is at the heart of who and what and why we are. Now, you may have uh, uh, noticed that, as I said that, I said I wanted to be a, a Bible-centered, grace-driven church. And, you know, and we, we've already talked about uh, in, in previous messages that everything we do, we want to have that established on the authority of the Word of God. And, and I mean, that, that is written into our core values under that inspired uh, by biblical truth. And, and in terms of, of what this means for this particular subject is it means that we need to understand what the Bible actually teaches about grace uh, and then how to put that into practice. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have heard some pretty unbiblical definitions of grace out there, or I've seen um, uh, some activities totally incompatible with what Scripture calls for us uh, being justified under a heading of, well, it's okay because of God's grace, right? In fact, there are some people that seem to think that God's grace means that you can do whatever you want to do, you can live in any way you want to live, and God's okay with that. I mean, their picture of grace is that it eliminates consequences. If you've ever had a kid, especially a teenager you'll know how they put this into practice, right? Because they get caught doing something wrong. You enact consequences, punishment. And they said, well, yeah, but I, I, I repented. I said, I'm sorry. I, I, aren't you supposed to show me grace? Meaning I shouldn't get punished, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's how the argument goes. If you haven't seen that yet, get prepared for it. It'll come. Um, and, and, and that's the picture so many people have of, 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 of grace. I can, I can, you know, yeah, I know God wants certain things, but, you know, it's okay because my bad behavior will, uh, foolish actions, it'll just all be covered by his grace. Um, you know, when the Apostle Paul was, was writing to the Christians in Rome, he, he spent a long time expounding on, on the wonder and the beauty and the awesomeness of grace. He just dove into how, how incredible God's grace is for us. And, and he told them uh, specifically that, that God's grace is so incredible that no matter what the depths of their sin, no matter how deep, how dark, how nasty, how broad, how bad their sin is, God's grace is even greater. And, and that there, there is nothing that you can do that could outshine the grace of God. In fact, the, the deeper the depths of your depravity, the brighter God's grace shines because it covers it all. It's awesome. And he went and described that. But as soon as he got done doing that, he, he anticipated that there could be some people who would come up with a really silly suggestion. They would say, oh, really? Well, if that's true then shouldn't we just sin all the more so that God's grace would show even greater? And his response to that was, may it never 
be. The idea that God's grace could be used as a covering for willful sin was just abhorrent to him because that's not the way God's grace works. Now, before we look at, uh, you know, how we live out grace, we do do need to make sure we understand kind of the definition of what it is. Uh, You know, the word grace is used 128 times in the New Testament. Obviously, a pretty important concept, right? 128 times. Just by way of trivia here, though, uh, did you know that of all those times that it's used, it was never once came from the lips of Jesus? Did you guys realize that? He never once used the word grace in all his teachings. He never once specifically taught about grace, at least as far as uh, his teachings that are um, uh, recorded for us in the Bible. But of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't care about grace or that he didn't display it or live it out, right? I mean, the exact opposite is true. When the apostle John, who arguably was the closest with Jesus, who who knew him better than any other human, described Jesus, he defined him in this way. He said, and the word, the word referring to Jesus, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus may not have actually used the word grace in his teaching, but according to John, he was full of it. And, and, and please don't take that out of context, right? If you take that statement out of context, then I'm going to get in trouble. The next thing you know, they're going to round up me and Andy Stanley and tar and feather us, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, grace. He was full of grace and, and truth at the same time. But Jesus exuded grace in his words, in his attitudes, in his actions, in his whole life. That, that's, that's how they summed him up, right? He, he's summing up his entire life right here. Full of grace and truth. How would you like somebody to describe you that way be pretty awesome wouldn't it so a simple definition of the word is this grace is the unmerited favor of God willingly poured out upon undeserving recipients okay that's what grace is unmerited means that we did absolutely nothing to to earn or deserve it right God did not look down here at earth and see you and say, well, isn't that special? They deserve my grace. That didn't happen. If you think it's happening, you're wrong. Um, We'd like that to happen, but the truth is, compared to God's holiness and righteousness, there's just not a whole lot special about any of us. It's unmerited undeserved. His favor means all of God's goodness. All of his goodness. That's, that's included in his favor. That's, that's being given for you and, and, and willingly gave it, right? We don't have to 
to beg uh, or plead or grovel for it, even though we don't deserve it uh, and have no right for it, he, he willingly gives it. In fact, because of our sin, what we deserve is the exact opposite of his favor, right? We don't deserve his goodness in any way or form. What we deserve is his wrath and his punishment, but instead that we can receive his favor, that's grace. Now, my my early understanding uh, of God's grace really centered around pretty much just salvation, right? And as it's taught there in in Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. One of the the false teachings that Satan loves to push is that you have to to earn and deserve salvation. The, The way you deserve it, of course, is by being good enough doing enough religious things, uh, doing enough work. In fact, if you look at every other religion in the world, it's all about what man can do to be accepted, right? I mean, you look at Islam. It has the the five pillars that that you have to perform and and do everything. Buddhism, there's the eightfold path that you have to make sure you walk and do this. Hinduism, because there's thousands of gods in Hinduism, there's thousands of things that you're supposed to be doing to appease them or or, or to make things right. And many people view Christianity in that exact same light or manner. For them, it's all about uh, help uh, keeping the rules, being good enough. And if you break the rules, then you have to do some sort of penance uh, to pay for it, to make up for it. But either way, it all comes down to what you do, right? And that's how so many people view Christianity. And, and, and the unknowable question that a person like that lives with, I mean, if that's your thinking or if that's your believing, uh, then the question they, they can never really answer is, have I been good enough? Did did I do enough? And that's why the answer you'll get when you talk to so many people, uh, and and if you ask them, "Are are you going to heaven? What's the answer you get? I hope so. I hope so. You hear it all the time, right? I hope so. Why do they hope so? I'm trying. That's what they say, right? I'm trying. I, 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 I'm trying to do to do good, to treat people nice. Whatever they, they're trying. Grace it throws all human efforts, all our trying, harder out the window. I mean, since God is is perfect, right? Since since He is absolutely righteous and holy and we are not then there is no way we can ever be good enough your first sin your very first sin and i don't know about you but i I started out pretty early sinning Your, your, your very first sin disqualifies you and no matter how hard you try or work, or how many good things you do after that, you can never make up for that. And, and here's the problem. None of us ever stop at that very first sin. 
right? I mean, we've we got this problem. We, we keep going. And the good news of the gospel is that God knew we could never do it. We could never merit heaven by our own, our own efforts and our work. So he did the work for us. In Jesus, God took all the sins of the world upon himself. Have you ever thought about what that meant? Took all the sins of the world upon himself? That means that Jesus Christ became legally guilty of every lie, of every rape, of every murder, of every heinous sin you could think about. Took it upon himself. And he paid the price for them on the cross. As a young boy, I, I memorized a verse that explained the price that he paid, right? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages means that's what you earned. That that's what you deserve is death. Getting free, undeserved gift instead, the gift of eternal life, that's grace. So that was, that was my understanding, really, uh, of grace. Uh, you know, it saved you from the punishments of hell. It gave you a, a place in heaven with everlasting life with, with God. And, and as a young man, th- that's really kind of where it ended for me. That, that grace was just the thing that got me saved. Somehow in, in my early Christian life, I had missed that grace is so much bigger than that. I mean, I know that forgiving your sins and making you right with God and getting, getting you into heaven, heaven, that's huge, right? But grace is huger. Here, here's the truth. We need grace not only to make us fit for heaven, but we need grace to live the Christian life every day here down on earth. See, I'd I'd learn, you know, Titus uh, 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Yeah, I'd learn that part, but somehow I had missed the next part. That Here's what grace does. It says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Right? According to this passage, think about it. What is it that is instructing us? It's, it's grace that does these things. And first it says two things in the passage, right? First it does bring salvation. Grace makes salvation available for all who would believe it and receive it. And and like me, I suspect maybe there are some of you that well, kind of thought of that as really kind of the sum package of what grace was. But the second thing grace does is instruct us how to live the Christian life here on earth. That's what verse 12 is saying. And, and understanding that, as I, as I went through that, that was a tremendous turning point for me because previously, I had kind of pictured the Bible as something akin to a great big rule book, right? I mean, I figured that as a Christian, all I had to do 
was read the book, figure out the rules, and and then follow them. And then everything would be hunky-dory after that, right? It's it's just smooth sailing. you, You just read the book, follow the rules, and do it. You don't have to raise your hand here, but anybody thought that that's kind of the way the Christian life worked? Unfortunately, there was just one major flaw in my reasoning. See, it, it turns out that even as a believer, follower of Jesus, I'm really bad at following the rules. I, I'm bad at not doing the things that I'm supposed to do and doing the things I'm not supposed to do. Anybody in here have that problem or is it just me? The big list of rules, it wasn't helping. I mean, a big list of rules, that's what the Jews lived under in the Old Testament, right? No matter how hard they tried, and they didn't always try very hard, uh, but no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't keep the rules. And and so then Jesus came and, and, and died for us and the church started growing, people started getting saved. The book of Acts, you can read about that. And, and a whole bunch of non-Jewish people were, were, were responding to the gospel and, and having their sins forgiven and becoming followers of Jesus. They were getting saved, becoming Christians. And, and they, these Jewish Christians, were th- there was a bunch of them that were thinking, hey, these, these non-Jewish guys that are believing... They need to you know, learn to keep some of the same rules that you know, we had to keep and do all this. And they, they wanted them to follow certain Old Testament laws. And, and Peter's response to that was, Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you trying to go back to doing all the rules when that didn't work for us? is what he's saying. Laws are are good. They're good at showing us how bad we are. But laws in and of themselves have no power to help us be good. They they simply show us where we fail. And their whole point was that things, things were going to work different now because of Jesus. Because that very same grace that gives you salvation, that very same grace is going to be what helps you to live a life pleasing to God. So look again at at Titus 2.12. That grace instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. Again, it's vitally important. What is it that's doing the instructing? His grace. Now, the word instruct means a whole lot more than just laying out the precepts or or, or the rules, right? Um, That was actually a word that was used uh, for child rearing. And and it it, uh, included the the idea of, of not only providing instructions for living, but training and admonition and reproof and encouragement and punishment, I mean, all of that was wrapped up in that word instruct, and it was all to be administered in a loving way for the good and the benefit 
of the child. That's what that instruction means. And Paul's saying here that it is God's grace that does all of that for us. All those things for us. That's, that's what does it in, his law, in, in our lives. Not, not his law, not, not the rules, but his grace. Grace, it says, instructs us to do two things. One negative and the other positive. It's his grace that negatively teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. In other words, God's grace teaches us to say no to certain things. Now, ungodliness is usually associated with, with evil practices, right? Things that are dishonest and cruel and debased and wicked and immoral, all that type of thing. And it does, of course, include that. But, but the term as it's used in the Bible is actually much broader than that. Ungodliness refers to the, the way of, of living life without taking God into an account. It's ignoring, it's minimizing, it's kind of just disregarding God. So, so that means a person might have no malice towards God whatsoever. They just don't ever think about Him. I don't care about God. I don't really need Him for life. So that means uh, someone might actually be a very moral, upstanding citizen and still be ungodly because they ignore God. And God's grace teaches us to say no to that kind of living, whether it's wickedness or simply ignoring God. It also teaches us to say no to worldly desires. And that can simply be defined as a preoccupation with the things of the world. Right? It describes a person who is chasing after money and possessions or popularity and prestige or, or pleasures and good times or safety and security or whatever else this world has to offer. It teaches us to say, no, that's, that's not your priority. That's, that's not what you're chasing after. But it's not just the negative. Grace also teaches us to say yes to living sensibly, righteously, godly. To, to live sensibly means to live with, with restraint and self-control, probably referring primarily to how you live yourself, your own personal character, where uh, um, uh, righteously means the right actions, in particular right actions as they would relate to other people. And, and then godly, of course, means right heart, right attitude, right actions towards God. So in all those areas, God's uh, saying it's, it's His grace that teaches us to say yes to living those ways. And, and for God, in His economy, it's never good enough just to eliminate bad things from your life, right? He, he wants you to fill it with this positive, with this good way of living, and it's His grace that He uses to accomplish that in in our lives. And, and I think there are several practical implications of that for me, for you, for for us as a church. I mean, first of all, it should take a huge weight off of our shoulders concerning living out the Christian life. It's not about gritting your teeth and and trying harder. It's it's not about keeping a long list of rules, following the right do's and don'ts, 
I mean, obviously God does uh, have a, a, a desire for us to live lives that are, are, are holy, and he shows us in his word what that looks like. But the way we get there is not from self-effort, just like there was no self-effort involved in his grace that got us salvation. The way we get there it comes from resting in our relationship with Christ, uh, allowing the Holy Spirit and, and, and his power to strengthen and control us, and then simply cooperating with what God's doing in our lives. So, I mean, again, it's not like we're not doing anything, but, but what we do comes from a position of grace. We don't have to work hard to appease God. He's already been completely appeased in Jesus Christ. We are not judged upon our performance because we stand fully righteous before God because of Jesus. That's the great news about what it means to live in His grace. You can concentrate on your relationship with Jesus Christ and the natural outflow of that because of His grace will be a transformed life. The law, it commands us to change but gives us no power to do it. God's grace, it leads us to change but gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. There's a poem that I I came across, it's attributed to John Bunyan, who, if you're familiar, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Nobody knows for sure uh, where the poem came from, but, but their best guess is maybe he wrote it. And it says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the gospel. The concept, I think, is, is not only freeing for me as a person, but it was tremendously freeing as a pastor because you know what? That meant it's not my job to fix you. Okay? And, and I tried, and that was really hard <laughs> because I can't even fix myself. It's God's job. It's His responsibility to change us. One of the reasons why so many Christians or churches have a bad reputation with, with unbelievers is because we think fixing others is our job. And we're going to let them have it. Someone walks into the fellowship who does not conform to their picture of a good Christian, well, they'll let them know it. But if we understand that it's God's grace that changes lives, well, then guess what? We can give grace too. And since I'm a grace-driven person, I, I want people to feel comfortable when they come here, even as they're in the process of seeking Jesus, no matter where they might be in that process. Or maybe they're a brand new Christian. Or just a Christian who's never had a chance to grow. And they really don't know. Are we going to let God's grace be the one to change them, to transform them in His time and in His way and at His pace? If we're grace-driven as a church, that means 
we're going to be a come-as-you-are church, right? Not a come and join us after you clean up your life and get your act together, church. It's come where, where you are. And our job is to love you, and God's job is to change you. Now, doesn't, I mean, God obviously uses pastors and teachers and, and leaders to, to, to help others in their faith and their walk with Christ. Uh, grace does not mean that we never, that we don't speak the truth, that we don't teach what God's word says, but it was mean that it's going to dramatically impact our approaches, doesn't it? I mean, instead of the hammer and an, ad, anvil of, of judgment and condemnation, we'll allow the Holy Spirit to do his job of bringing conviction and, and transformation while we do our job of loving one another. It means in speech, actions, attitudes towards others, all of that is going to be regulated and controlled by grace. So I challenge each of you, pull out the old grace meter today. Where are you at on being a grace-driven person? Tell you what, you pray that God, he'll make you full of it, full of grace and truth, just as Jesus was. That's a prayer he's going to answer because guess what he said his job, his desire for each of us is? become more like Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you. We thank you for your grace, which is greater than all our sin. We're thankful for the salvation that it brings, but beyond that, God, we're thankful for your grace that we walk in every day. That it's your grace that transforms us that you've called us into relationship, that your desire for us is to grow that relationship with you. As people come in and become a part of our church, God, help us to understand it's not our job to change them, but to help them grow in their love and their relationship with you so that you can transform their lives. pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. As Nick puts um, his guitar on, I'm going to read Psalm 41 Verse 13, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel.